This week on the Sport Blokes. This week, seeds are plenty dropping in the Australian Open as the Joker rise up number 22. Is it as simple as the Sydney Kings keeping their crown in the NBL? And Brock is still pretty good as the 49ers headline a massive wildcard week in the NFL. So much again. Let's go. It's 10.45 on Saturday, the 21st of January, 2023. No, it's not. <laughs> well, not where you are. It's 12.45 and Stewie's on the other side of the country. How's the sunny Gold Coast, mate? I'll tell you what, it's already 36 degrees here in Perth. So how are things over there? Well, I have to say it's not been that sunny since I've been here. Melbourne was a disaster before that. I don't think it got past 20 degrees both days I was there. But, yeah, very, very average the first day. It's it's a bit warmer, probably into the 20s now. But, yeah, not amazing. Oh, there you go. Well, I'll tell you what is amazing, Stuart, talking about sport. And we'll be doing plenty of that over the next little while. In fact, like we did last week, we'll be splitting a couple of uh, – well, we'll be splitting one recording into a couple of different episodes. Opening bounce this week absolutely has to be open tennis. There's a lot to talk about. Have you seen much of it so far, mate? Uh, bits and pieces, not a hell of a lot. It's it's funny. I saw Kokonakis in total control, and then I saw the result the next day. I was like, what the hell happened there? So, yeah, seen bits and pieces, but I haven't watched anything in full. I guess straight off the top, you've got to look at some of the top players pulling out from injury. So Nick Kyrgios, Carlos Alcaraz, Gael Monfils, Marin Cilic, Naomi Osaka, Venus Williams, the list goes on. Some really massive outs and some players there who probably would have been in serious contention to actually take out the singles titles. Obviously not a particularly great start there. And I guess the the top seeds is the other really big thing. We always talk about the carnage in Grand Slams. This has been next level, though. And it's usually on the women's side, but it's actually the men's at the moment. So Rafael Nadal, the number one seed, injured, lost to American Mackenzie McDonald. Casper Ruud lost to American Jensen Brooksby. There is a theme here, by the way. Daniel Medvedev got knocked out by American Sebastian Corder. I mean, you were talking about this the other night. They're like, the only one that was safe was what, Taylor Fritz? Taylor Fritz and his drawings on the Fritz because he tried to draw a lock on the camera after one of his wins and it looked more like a cock. <laughs> Did you see that? I didn't actually see that. No, I didn't see that. <laughs> Apparently it's his signature to draw a lock on the camera after a win. It just didn't go too well. It's like, that, uh, what is it? The long kiss goodnight. <laughs> How'd you find me? On a picture of a man's penis. That's a <laughs> duck, not a dick. <laughs> That's a lock, not a car. Oh, dear. That it is, my friend. That it is. So, yeah, lots of crazy stuff going on in the seeds and certainly in the women's as well. Number two seed, Ons Jabeur, who I think a lot of people thought would be in the final. She lost very, very early on. Maria Sakari, the sixth seed, lost uh, to Zhu Lin from China. There's been, yeah, all sorts going on. One of the things I did want to talk about, though, is the whole ball boy and ball girl debacle that's been going on. And there's been a lot of talk about this, like Safada's volunteers, they're not getting paid for this. I think we're the only Grand Slam where they're not paid. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's been doing the rounds and people are saying that uh, they're slave labour, basically. Yeah, it, absolutely it is. I mean, if you look at the big match that you mentioned before, Tanasi Kokonakis and Andy Murray finished at 4.05am yeah, and ridiculous. Andy Murray made the very, very good point. Imagine your kids are volunteering, not getting paid. They get home at like 5 o'clock in the morning. How pissed would you be? Only to probably turn around and do it all again in a few hours. Well, in all likelihood, yeah. And, and so you've got the umpires and the line judges getting paid and you've got these ball kids who are arguably doing more work, running around, constantly chasing these balls and, and it's they're getting nothing for it. Yeah, they should get something, shouldn't they? What did I say? I think at Wimbledon they get like a 200 quid stipend or whatever. You can at least give them something, surely. 
Well, exactly. I mean, the people that are winning these tournaments are um, 3.8 million or something ridiculous like that. Surely you can give them 50 bucks, 100 bucks a game, whatever it happens to be. It's just, it's insane. And so obviously moving on from that, we did just mention obviously the ridiculous time that that Murray-Kokonakis game finished. This is the second latest finish to a game in Oz Open history behind the famous Leighton Hewitt-Marcos Bagdadis match in 2008. It, it is really, really tough because obviously, you know, you either have to shut the match down before it even starts, which means the winner's only going to get a one-day turnaround for the next match, or you postpone sort of halfway through and it kills all the momentum that the match has had. The, the, I don't know, they're in sort of this really tricky spot between a rock and a hard place. It, it is tough, isn't it? Because they have so many games to get through in a two-week period. Short of extending the tournament by a few days, it, it, you, you'd struggle to see how, how they can accommodate this in any other way. Whether they potentially look at maybe adding an extra rest day, maybe in the middle, so maybe after every couple of rounds, just to kind of give players who have had these. And look, Andy Murray's a good example. He's had two matches so far. He's had two really long five-setters. He's not a young guy. He's had a hip replacement. So he's the yeah. sort of guy who could really make some sort of use from a little yeah, extra day. It helps the spectacle too. There's more people watching if it's not finishing at 4 a.m., of course. Now, I don't know if you've heard much about the tennis ball issue, Nate. Have you heard anything about this, like the actual issue with the balls themselves? Oh, no, I haven't. This is a new one for me. I haven't heard anything about that. Well, a lot of people have been really unhappy with them. So they're saying that the, the balls actually start fluffing up way too soon. And obviously, anyone who's watched any sort of tennis will know that they call for new balls after, I think it's the first seven games and then every nine games on from that. And the, the problem with these balls is because they're fluffing up so soon, they're really hard to put away. And the only players that are really probably having huge success are guys who hit flatter balls. Somebody like, oh, I don't know, let's say Nick Kyrgios. And so there's this conspiracy that they were brought in to make it easier for Nick to win, but he didn't play a single shot in the tournament because of injury. And so all of these top seeds are sort of complaining and saying that it's just not the same and matches are now going longer, which is the result of what's, you know, what's happening. These longer rallies, these, we've just seen a 70 shot rally between Karen Kachanov and Jason Kubler of Australia. And so these games are now going longer into the night. So it's a, a real knock-on effect. Mm, interesting early days too. Well, yeah. I mean, we're only, what, two and a half rounds in. I think the the top half of the draw have finished their round three matches, and I think the bottom half will be starting in probably a couple of hours. But it is a worry, and obviously the knock-on effect is that we are seeing, as I say, these ridiculously late matches, you know, going well past sort of two, three o'clock in the morning, and players are going to get knocked out as a result of it because they're not getting the same sort of turnaround time. So, Nath, just quickly, the Russian flag saga. Uh, we've had Russian and Belarusian flags that have been banned now. There was a, a Russian flag courtside at a match between Katerina Bandol of Ukraine and Kamila Rak- uh, Rakimova of Russia. Open organisers have said, our initial policy was that fans could bring them in but could not use them to cause disruption. Yesterday, we had an incident where a flag was placed courtside. The ban is effective immediately. We'll continue to work with the players and our fans to ensure the best possible environment to enjoy the tennis. Any, any thoughts on that? I find the whole thing weird. Like, how do you define causing a disruption? Like, if they're letting them in, is showing it at all a disruption? And if so, why did you let it in in the first place? A bit weird. Yeah, it is a little bit weird. And I must admit, as much as obviously, like, the whole Russia-Ukraine thing absolutely sucks, I I think if you're going to let these players play being able to display a flag, being able to even just put the little flag up on the graphics and show that a Daniel Medvedev is from Russia. Like we know this sort of stuff. So I just, I I don't know. I think with this sort of thing, yeah, fair enough. If 
they're getting right up in the person's face. You know, this Ukrainian girl is just trying to, you know, go out there and play the best tennis she can. But if a flag is just being flown, uh, look, she's going to know what a Russian flag looks like. I just, I don't think it's, as you say, I don't think it's enough of a, a disruption really. Uh, and I just, I think they're, they've maybe just gone a little bit too far on it. Yeah, I don't know. I can see how it would put you off if if your mind kind of goes there when you see a Russian flag. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe just but don't let them in. Would you not say then just ban all flags? Yeah, that's basically what I'm saying. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yep. Kind of, kind of like what they did with the cricket, where they basically said, "Well, look, let's just ban all banners, so that there's no issue with anything being offensive or whatever happens." And just yeah, if you're gonna do it, just ban them all. Well, at the cricket, they banned fun, so that's that's going a bit far. <laughs> very, very true. Well, we're, we're, back in the day. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are from the home of fun in Perth, aren't we? <laughs> and mate, just quickly, the last thing. I don't know if you saw this one. This was a really interesting one. So Maria Sakari in her second round match. She's playing Russian Diana Schneider, who was basically, I don't know if she was a qualifier, but she was unseated, basically an 18-year-old Russian uni student who was absolutely doing her best, playing amazingly, took the first set. And in the second set, she's serving love 40 down, 4-5 down as well. So she's gone in, saved three set points, managed to hold on and get to 5-all. And, you know, she was doing what all players do, hitting the big shot, Big scream. And Sakari has actually said, if she screams one more time in my face, I'm going to call the referee. How ridiculous is that, considering that happens basically every single match? Yeah, I did see that one. That's a bit of gamesmanship, I think, trying to maybe get her to stop and put her off. Hmm. Well, it worked. Yeah, pushing back. But unfortunately, as, as I said before, Sakari didn't get past the next round. So there you go. Oh, enter Sakari. <laughs> Or exit Sakari. Oh, maybe there's that title. <laughs> so it's got to be us, Joey. Who you got? Well, I mean, the, the really obvious choice, I mean, with all the men's top seeds coming out, it's basically injuries the only thing that I feel can probably stop Novak Djokovic from winning it. But I do have a little bit of a dark horse, and that is Sebastian Korda. He is playing great tennis right now. It's the 25-year anniversary of his dad, Peter Korda, winning it as well, which is pretty cool. He's got a booming serve. He hits massive ground strokes. He was absolutely sensational in beating Daniel Medvedev overnight as well. I really, really like his chances. There's not many people that are going to be able to return his serve, so it's just down to whether he can, I guess, create enough breakpoint opportunities and, yeah, come over the top. That'd be a great story. One other thing I've noticed in the tennis, did you see Kwon Su Wu did the lucky loser at the Adelaide International? She lost but ended up winning the tournament as the lucky loser. I didn't see that, actually. That's really, really cool. I love those sorts of stories. It sort of it takes it back to the Layla Fernandez and uh, Emma Raducanu sort of situation, which is, yeah, really cool. Now, in the women's side, I mean, again, the the really, really obvious choice is an Iga Swiatek. She has been just ridiculous so far. I mean, she, she lost, what, one game in the third round. She won in very, very quick time in the second round in fact she hasn't lost a set so far which is not surprising at all i do think there are potentially a couple of dark horses though that could win this and the women's is generally a little bit more wide open i love the matchup of yelena ostapenko and coco Gauff in the, the fourth round which is going to be fun jess pegula the third seed still looking really good and then in the i guess the southern half of the draw you've got arena sabalenka the five seed who is very very strong so I think any one of those could potentially cause an upset. I like Sabalenka's chances a bit more because she has a very wide open half of the draw. There's really only, I guess, a couple of top seeds left in that half. So 
Yeah, look, it could go either way. But, I mean, I think if you put a gun to my head and said pick two people, it would be Schwiatek and Djokovic. I think they're the, the obvious ones, unless an injury really rules them out. Yeah, I think you're on the money there. Schwiatek was very impressive yesterday. Very impressive. So, sure, we've got to begin our Aussie basketball with some sad news, unfortunately. And rest in peace to Mark Leader. The 327-game veteran was a two-time champion. First player ever to record four triple-doubles in his career. Very good player. Obviously, we were a bit young to kind of see his peak, but we remember him on those North Melbourne Giants teams. Very handy, knocking down threes and and playing that bench role in those uh, mid-90s championship teams. Yeah, he was one of those players that I think a lot of guys really feared. And I guess the Adelaide days were probably the peak for him. I mean, he was just an incredible flat-out baller. Just, yeah, one of those guys that would dive in on a ball even towards the end of the career as you say the north melbourne days he was uh he was still a very very handy role player off the bench but yeah an absolute legend of the game lost and we we say only 62 i mean it's still a decent knock but 62 he just feels so young nowadays oh no absolutely if if you or i were taken that young i think uh we wouldn't feel very satisfied so no it's terrible yeah too young definitely so nath i guess one of the things that we did want to just look at quickly and there's a bit to talk about couple of new players that have kind of made a bit of an impact to teams that are really fighting their way into this playoff uh, picture, I guess, at the moment. Ty Webster, the big addition for the Wildcats, and Marcus Lee, I guess, who's sort of come across for Melbourne United. I guess, firstly, your thoughts on Ty Webster? Yeah, so obviously it's a little bit of old news now, but we've actually had a chance to see them in action a little bit. So it's good to, to be able to speak about their additions, having actually seen them in the uniforms. Ty, obviously there are a lot of Perth fans who initially were like, well, hold on, we need big man depth. Why the hell are we getting Ty? But if a player like Ty is available, you've got to get him. And he's he's fit in quite well so far. Initially in that first game, I thought, oh, is this going to negatively impact on Bryce's touches? But kind of in the couple of games since then, and obviously that Sydney game last night, which we'll no doubt talk about shortly as well, I think he is settling into the team. John really seemed to have found his rotation a little bit better, albeit a pretty much small ball. So so I think he's been a good addition. And while the Wildcats could do with some interior D and rebounding, look, that's not going to happen. This is the team they're going to go with. And, well, they're looking better, aren't they? So, so I think both Webster brothers have been really important additions to this team. And I, I was worried about the, the ball hogging and, and that sort of thing but I think he's proven to be a very nice little piece for the Wildcats. Yeah, look, again, I mean, I was a a big fan of the Corey Webster pickup, and I know, obviously, the the season didn't start amazingly for him, but he certainly well and truly worked his way, I guess, into the team and kind of became that that really important second scorer. I think, Ty, you get a little bit more from him, so I I don't think he's going to be looking for quite as many shots as Corey's going to be putting up. But... I guess maybe lost is he's a little bit taller and a little bit longer than most people realize. Like he's six, four pretty decent wingspan. I I really like the fit. I mean, for me with, I guess us getting very much nothing from Mitch Norton, uh, Kyle Zunich, I guess maybe hasn't quite earned the minutes yet. Having another really solid ball handler and a guy who look, he'll hit a wide open shot if you, if you give it to him, but he's not looking to, I guess, be a shoot first sort of guy the way that Corey is. So I think having him there as, I guess, another ball handler allows Bryce to play a little bit more off the ball as well. I think it's a good fit. Yeah, I think so too. And it means that the defense has to be honest. They can't just sag onto Bryce and even, okay, Blanchfield's not playing well, but even Travis has been hitting more threes lately. So 
there are Jesse Wagstaff knocked down a couple of big ones last night. So there's always players on the floor that that are capable of hitting that three. And I think Webster's just kept the defense even more honest. So it, it's definitely a good move. What do you make of Melbourne United and Marcus Lee? There's perhaps no coincidence that Melbourne started to win since his addition. Yeah, I mean, he's another one of these guys. And and we talk about it so often about the fit. And there's obviously this big thing with Melbourne United where we know that they've got guys that can score the ball. We know what, you know, Chris Golding can absolutely catch by at the drop of a hat. Rajon Tucker has really, really moved forward and progressed as a quality scorer. I mean, we obviously we gave him shit at the start of the season about, oh, I'm the best import in the league. <laughs> now he's, he, he's looking, yeah, maybe not the best in the league, but he's certainly looking very, very solid. I keep wanting to say RXM, but obviously Xavier Rathan Mays, we know what we're getting with him as well. So I guess with Lee, what they were looking for was a big guy who would basically not want his number to be called. He'll catch lobs. He's got some moves low post if he needs to. He's got pretty decent hands, but I think what they're wanting more from him was a shot blocker, a rebounder, and they're getting that. I mean, he's had 20 blocks in his last eight games, so two and a half a game. Yeah, he's pulling down sort of eight to 10 rebounds most nights. So they're kind of getting what they need from him. And as you say, it's very little coincidence that all of a sudden this Melbourne United team is a team that I don't think many people are going to want to play in the playoffs. No, definitely not. I, I think they'll probably, they've probably leapfrogged a few teams and they'll probably finish sixth and they'll be dangerous too. They're, they're, you're right. The teams will not want to face them. Both Perth and Melbourne are hitting the right form at the right time. And I think, in the NBL, so in the NBA, players like Marcus Lee are a lot more plentiful and and he's kind of, I don't know, it's maybe not the the perfect example, but kind of that DeAndre Jordan type, like you say, defending, finishing at the rim in that dunker spot. In the NBL, those athletic bigs are a bit more of a premium. And so if you can play above the rim as a big, and you know, a lot of, you think about Tayshon Thomas, for example, he's a little bit below the rim. I mean, he can get up, but a little bit more below the rim. So I think Lee is a really good addition and, and I don't think it's a coincidence. I think I think that he's the perfect fit, a much better fit than Caroline. And that athleticism is really going to put them in good stead. And as you say, the fact that he's not going to beg for the ball it means that their chemistry won't be negatively impacted either. So so I think Melbourne are very dangerous. Mm. Oh, legitimately, they are probably one of a, a very select few that can probably win it. And we'll talk about that in a, I suppose, in a few minutes. But yeah, you're right. I think he's well and truly just, yeah, he puts them, I guess, over the top from those also rands into the contenders category. So, Stewie, we both had the uh, fortune of going to the open air game. In, well, <laughs> mixed results, wasn't it? <laughs> what were your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've only just regained my eyesight, which is good. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's one of those things. Like, I mean, look, the game itself was great. Obviously, as a Cats fan, anytime you pump Adelaide, that is a great experience. But it's, in fact, do you know what? Before we even get into this, I want to ask you this question. Are the 36ers done? Because they look absolutely disinterested. They are done. And this has to to be one of the most disappointing teams of all time. Given their talent and their Aussie talent as well, and even Kai Soto played okay the other day, they've got a good deep team. They should have been in the top six. Their fans will be very disappointed. One of the things that I don't understand from that game, so obviously like Robert Franks played really well, shot the lights out. He was the only player that turned up. Kay Soto, who you just mentioned, was a really curious one. Like, only played 11 minutes, started the game really strong, looked like a legitimate threat on both ends, blocked shots, was able to get up and finish on a really, really tough alley-oop. 
And then all of a sudden you look at it and it's like they've just played small ball for the remaining 30-odd minutes because Daniel Johnson barely played as well. So it was, yeah, it was a weird one. You're right about Franks at the offensive end, but they were woeful defensively, including him. Uh, both both teams really weak in the paint. That's the way to beat both teams is to really bang it inside. Yeah, well, I mean, thankfully, the transition defense was probably one of the big differences. They played none of it. We played a little bit. And the Wildcats were hitting their threes. So so yeah. we've got to say, we were worried about the breeze and the roof was only 60% open because of the breeze, apparently, but it didn't seem to affect the Wildcat shooting percentages. No, well, I mean, even for us way up back in the nosebleeds, I don't think we really experienced any of the breeze. It was just a ridiculous amount of sun basically straight in our face. Yeah, so unfortunately, and look, I think it was only one side out of the four sides. And uh, what I don't know, what would you call it? The Swan River end or whatever. <laughs> but yes, unfortunately <laughs> for the second quarter there, we did have the sun in our eyes. And look, we could still see things, but it wasn't the most pleasant quarter, was it? No, I would say probably even a quarter and a half, probably halfway through the first quarter till just before half time. And if you're having to shield your eyes like that, and it's impacting hundreds and hundreds of fans, it wasn't just a really small patch of people. It was a huge section of that upper part. It was, it was just, it was off-putting. I mean, once the sun went past it, the viewing experience was fantastic. It looked great, but we probably lost, I reckon, 15 out of the 40 minutes to that glaring sun. And it, it's one of those things, like, I don't know about you, but for me, it was enough to put me off going to another one unless I was sitting way further down in that sort of lower bowl area. Yeah, so we, we were always a little bit sceptical, always thought it was a bit of a gimmick. I've got to read this quote from Big Alexi, and, and also... Uh, it's got to be said, like we put a photo at Sport Blokes on Twitter and it got a bit of traction and it got some comments. And uh, I don't know, a bit of negativity. I try, we try not to be too negative, but uh, Big Alexi said, a gimmicky marketing exercise that seriously went wrong for those spectators forced to watch the game in the unbearable heat and glare. The failure to recognize the impact of the summer heat on loyal spectators beggars belief. Is that too Word. harsh or do you reckon that's on the money? No, look, I mean, certainly for the people in the area that we were in, yeah, that's probably right on the money. And look, the people in the lower bowl wouldn't have even had a clue that it was like that. So I, I guess the experience, it's going to be tough. And I, look, I don't know if they had the same issue in Melbourne, whether they were getting the same sort of glare, but it, it is tough. And, and I think the only way really to get around that is to basically have the game start a lot later. But the league's not going to do that because Sydney and Melbourne. No, but it's weird, though, because often the Wildcats games do start a little bit later. Like It was a 5 o'clock start, wasn't it? Often they're a 6 o'clock start. Last night was 6.30. Yeah, I think... So I can't think for those sorts of 6.30. Well, I think those marquee sort of games, they really want to make sure that the rest of the nation is watching them. And if it's starting to get a little bit later, you know, with the daylight savings now, Sydney and Melbourne, if the game's not starting till 9.30, 10 o'clock a lot less people are going to watch it. Whereas if it's starting earlier, I think a lot of people will will sort of get, make the effort, I guess. And it, look, it was, a, it was a good game. It was a good high-scoring game. A lot of points on the on the board, a lot of guys hitting threes. So, you know, they, they probably wanted everyone to see it. But yeah, just for me, I don't know, it left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth for the certainly the first half anyway. Yeah, look, I'm glad we were there to experience it. Uh, but it did kind of confirm what I thought all along. On the flip side, it did do what they wanted it to do. They opened the upper deck. It was a sellout. They had nearly 14,000 there. So it got the attention in the media. So in that sense, it's a good idea. But as far as, yeah, I, it, it's a bit gimmicky and and I tend to, yeah, to, to not really be all that interested in the gimmicks. 
So big win for the Wildcats last night as well over the Sydney Kings. There's been a lot of upsets this round. The Kings were probably due for a loss. That's after Tassie went into Cairns and won there. My goodness, there's a lot going on in the NBL, and it is very exciting. And if you're going to be in Perth next Sunday, there's still a handful of tickets left. Not many. Let's throw to that ad. The Sport Blokes are proud to announce a very special live event coming in the new year. Full Court Fitness and the Backlot Perth proudly present NBL Podcasts Live. Nathan Stewie will be joining the NBL Pocket Podcasters and superfan Nick Tan, and you should too. Come watch the Perth versus Tasmania game on the big screen and then stay for a live recording of the collaborative podcast. Wildcats member? Never fear. It's an away game, so you can join us too. So whether you're a Perthling or you're in the area on January 29, what are you waiting for? There are very limited seats available, so check out the link in the description and grab a ticket while you still can. Hope to see everybody there, especially you, Nath, because it's probably important you're there. <laughs> I'll be there with bells on, mate. Of the proverbial description. Ooh, that's going to be pretty jingly over the recording. Well, that's why I said proverbial. I knew you'd, I knew you'd yes. comment on that. <laughs> so, no, there's basically two and a half rounds left. There's maybe, what, a handful of games for most teams, maybe three for some others. So we're getting pretty close to the end. So I guess at this stage, uh, the obvious question is, who can win it before we look at the run home? Well, you'd have to think that, obviously, Sydney, Cairns and New Zealand definitely can, I think partly because of their excellent import trios. Although New Zealand are a bit shaky at the moment, but I, I think they can come good. After that, it gets interesting. <sighs> I'm reluctant to say the Wildcats because of the interior D and the D generally. I do worry about Melbourne, but geez, like they, they pretty much have no margin for error. And if Melbourne were to get, how good would a Sydney-Melbourne semi-final series be, hey? Oh, I think, I, think, I think the best five teams are probably... Sydney, Cairns, New Zealand, Perth, and Melbourne. But then Tassie's there too. I, look, I don't know if Tassie can win the championship, but who knows? I mean, they could they could scare a team. So I wouldn't... Yeah, I'd probably say those five. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, yeah. I mean, Sydney, it seems like it's theirs to lose. Even with the game last night, look, they didn't play amazingly well by Sydney standards, and they still were in with a very good shot of winning that game. Yeah, look, Cairns are still looking pretty decent as well. They do struggle against Perth, as we you've mentioned in a previous show. So if it does come down to a semi-final matchup with Cairns, who knows? Tassie and New Zealand, yeah, looking a little bit vulnerable in recent weeks. New Zealand on a four-game losing streak. They've got Sydney next as well. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with them, whether they can make a statement and sort of turn that around. Melbourne United and Perth definitely in terms of the teams looking in. I think they definitely look like the stronger two out of, I guess, the trio of Perth, Melbourne United and South East Melbourne. I'm with you. I'm not a, at all convinced that Perth are legitimate contenders. Far too inconsistent. Lack of a bench. Defense is an issue as well. But obviously they can put points on the board, the same as Melbourne United as well. So those two teams I think are going to be pretty fun and Certainly, no team's going to want to play either of us at the moment, which is uh, which is good fun. So it's sticking out like a sore thumb. There's a team we haven't mentioned, and you can almost draw a line through the southeast Melbourne Phoenix. I think. Yeah, well, it's interesting, and I guess maybe that's the perfect way to start looking into the runs home. So for southeast Melbourne, they've got Perth, Cairns, and Sydney left. The Cats and the Kings both away. Can you see a world where they win two of those? Not really. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? So they lost to the Bullets at the end of the last round and you're thinking, oh, that's nearly them done. But then they went in and, and beat Tassie. So they're still alive, but 
or it's only going to take one or two more losses where you can just about roll a line through them, I think. And even, even I know they're not playing the Hawks, but even the Hawks and Bullets, so even the, the bottom two teams could play spoiler because they're starting to look good. So good to see the Hawks get that win over the Breakers the other day. That Tyler Harvey three, my goodness, ice in his veins. And look, we, we've been negative about him quite a bit over the years, but he's been really good the last month, two months, hey? so we we got to give him props. Absolutely. He's been an absolute beast. He's getting back to the player that I think we saw you know, three years ago when he sort of entered the league. And it's, uh, yeah, it's probably no coincidence that when there's less guys on the team that are taking shots away from him, whether that be any of the imports that, that sort of came in, all of a sudden the ball's in his hand a little bit more Okay, yes, he's going to take some bad shots. And, I mean, fair play to him. That shot he hit was basically at the edge of the half-court circle. So it's a tough shot. Oh. But it's one that he's capable of making. Steph Curry-like. But I'll throw that question back to you, Stewie. Obviously, they're playing the Wildcats tomorrow. So if they win that one, you never know. But what do you reckon about the Phoenix? Look, I think if they win tomorrow, they're definitely an even money chance of making it. I mean, Cairns and Sydney, still not that easy. I would rate them a decent chance of beating Cairns at home. Um, Sydney away, maybe not so much. But yeah, I think this Perth game is probably it for Southeast Melbourne. If they lose that, I don't see a world where they make it. So hopefully we'll get this episode up sooner rather than later, but it might have been played by the time our loyal listeners and all listeners have a listen to this one. Now, Melbourne have three games left, so they've got New Zealand away and they've got a home and away series with the Adelaide 36ers. Do you think they win all three of those? I think there's a bloody good chance they do, but you'd have to think they'd at least win the Adelaide games. Mm. So that obviously holds them in pretty good stead for making it. If we look at Tassie next, they have the Kings and the Wildcats at home and the Hawks away. What are your thoughts on that, Ron? Yeah, it's not. It's good that they've got the right games at home, but I think all three could prove to be tricky because, as I said, the Hawks have been have been a tough out, even with all their. I, I can't believe how unlucky that franchise has been. I wouldn't normally say that a coach with only two wins to his name should be maybe third place in coach of the year, but Jacob Jacomas has to. He has to get some props, doesn't he? Oh, he does. He's done. He's done pretty bloody well with what he's had. I mean, as you say, well, we've lost what four imports at different points of the the season to in you know season any injuries it's that's pretty brutal um and i do have to say as well i, I think while you said sort of yeah absolutely right the kings and wildcats are the games you'd want at home i think tassie plays the wildcats almost better than any team in the league so i that's one i'm concerned about for perth i i can definitely see them losing that one sydney is always a 50 50 game because i mean look tassie play them tough but yeah geez it's it's an interesting little run for them. It really is. And yeah, buy those tickets while you still can. There's only a handful left because that game against Tassie is going to be huge. Absolutely huge. Now, speaking of Perth, they've still got quite a few games left. So Southeast Melbourne away, Illawarra at home, Tassie away, and then Cairns and Sydney at home to sort of finish off the season. It's a tough run, but I guess enough games at home to make it fairly certain that the Cats make it. I don't want to say that out loud, but I did. <laughs> what do you reckon? Well, I think the fact that Sydney might be resting players for that very last game of the season helps the Wildcats too, although they might want revenge after last night. I think the Wildcats would be really thinking they could go four and one. Maybe they'll be happy with three and two in that run. And as I say, that Sydney game's even more gettable because of the fact that they might decide on the eve of the playoffs they rest blokes. You know, the funny thing is that the game before that against Cairns might be what decides that because if the Wildcats can beat Cairns, and look, we usually have a pretty good run against Cairns. We play them quite well. If the Cats win that, 
then Sydney are probably all but guaranteed the top spot, in which case, yeah, they possibly do rest some players. Or, yeah, as you say, they might come out and basically flip us off and say, fuck you, and try and do what South East Melbourne did last year and knock us out. It's win-win, though, because the Wildcats would be happy with that tune-up. I, look, I think the Wildcats are making it. I can't see them dropping out of the six. It's just a matter of where. Now, the team that is currently third, the New Zealand Breakers, a Brisbane at home, Melbourne United away, and then the Hawks and the Bullets away. It's a fairly soft draw in terms of having the Hawks and the Bullets three times. But as you said, those teams are playing quite well. Yeah, they're really they're in shaky form, aren't they, the Breakers? They really need to turn it around soon. If if they can win that Melbourne game, I think they'll they'll feel like they've probably recalibrated a bit. And they'll have a bloody good chance of doing that, obviously. It is a way, Nath. It's an away game. No, no, yeah, true, true. They'll have a shot, though. I, I think yeah. there's a lot of incentive for that second place and to miss a play-in a play or a, an elimination game. There's a lot of incentive to finish second. Really, New Zealand, their destiny's in their own hands and, and really they'll have no one to blame but themselves if they can't win most of those last few games, I think. Yeah. Now, the team that is currently second, Cairns, they've got not the easiest but also not the hardest. I mean, South East Melbourne away, Brisbane at home, and then Perth away. So the away games are probably tricky and obviously teams that are absolutely clawing to try and make their way up that ladder. They've probably banked enough wins to stay second unless they lose all three, but you never know. And then just to round it out, Sydney, who are currently top and will in all likelihood stay top. New Zealand at home, Tassie away, Southeast Melbourne at home, and then Adelaide and Perth away. You'd think they'd get at least three, probably four of those. I suspect that Wildcats game was the loss they needed to have, as I think I said before. So so I, I'd expect them to win most on the on the run home, maybe drop one more. But Yep, absolutely. And it's got to be said, I talked about uh, the, the coach of the year race. I mean, that might not be really settled until the very end too. I don't know when they need to have their votes in. They might need to have their votes in before the final game. But you'd have to think it's between Adam Ford and Modi Mayor. Yeah, I think you're right. I think Adam Ford probably should be the front runner. I mean, what did they have? Six and a half wins was the over-under at the start of the season and they're like, you know, 16. It's it's insane. Like they've done so incredibly well, played a great brand of basketball, believed in each other. But that's, a, I guess, a story for another episode. And speaking of awards, Stewie, the NBL's introduced the new Next Generation Award. What do you make of that one? Yeah, the NBL Rookie of the Year Award is no more. It's I love the idea. I don't like the execution. Like for me, I love the idea of getting rid of this really vague rookie of the year where someone like Luke Travers can win it in his third year in the league. But at the same time, why roll it out several games before the end of the regular season? That's my question. I agree. This sort of stuff should be done in the off season. They're moving the goalposts. So I'm going to quote this tweet from Harry Froling. I like the concept, but 25 is way too old. Next year will be my seventh year in the NBL and I'd be eligible for the award, which seems crazy to me. Takes away from a young kid getting the Rookie of the Year accolade that they can never take away from them. I feel for Sam Wardenberg. Yeah. He, and he's the guy, isn't it? Like He's absolutely probably runaway Rookie of the Year, working his ass off most of the season. Then all of a sudden, yeah, they basically open up this award to, what, more than a third of the, the entire league. It's ridiculous. So I do think that pros, I actually think they should have both. I think they should have the Rookie of the Year and this award and maybe work out a way where imports can qualify for maybe one but not the other. Obviously, we've talked about John Mooney. It was his first professional season and he would have been a prime candidate for Rookie of the Year. LaMelo Ball, obviously, as well. One thing that I'm interested, that I haven't heard anyone say, and I'm not obviously suggesting that I'm the first person to say it, 
But there's a lot of people talking about the age. Let's not tie it to the age. I think Harry Froling made a good point there. Why don't we tie it to games played? Why don't we make it 50 games or 75 games or 100 games? That way, most blokes, I mean, 100s maybe four seasons, maybe that's too much. But 50, 75, surely the games played is the way to work this out. Yeah, it's a really good way to look at it. I mean, obviously, yeah, 100, as you say, it's, that's sort of getting up towards sort of that fifth season. Maybe that's a little bit too far. But, yeah, I, I think 25 as an age certainly is too high. I think it probably needs to be more around that 23, yeah, 22, 23 mark, I guess. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, I, and I guess the other thing to look at is if you've got players that have gone across and played a bit of college ball and they're coming back, they'd still fit under that 23. So it, it does still almost feel a little bit like a rookie of the year award. But yes, yeah, someone like Sam Wardenberg, he, he's the guy. I just, I feel for him so badly. Like he deserves that accolade. But to have it basically ripped away on the eve of the playoffs is just, it's crazy. Yeah, I think. There might be some more tweaking to come with this one, but I, I really don't like moving goalposts mid-season. We're so close no. to the end. Why can't you just announce this for next season? Yeah, makes perfect sense. So, Nath, a lot going on in the NFL. We've just finished the week one of the playoffs, the wildcard games. There were some really, really interesting results over the weekend, uh, certainly one in particular that was very good for us. I did want to talk, I guess, before we get into that and also the Houston Texans incident. Uh, I, I don't know if it's Key or Quay Walker, but basically we're a week removed from the DeMar Hamlin incident and all of a sudden he basically, this Walker guy, decides to shove an athletic trainer who's tending to an injured player. Like in what world is this anything short of a ridiculously large suspension? Like what oh, a dick thing to do. It really is. And and I'm going to go to Bill Barnwell here. Great NFL read. For those that are fans of the NFL, he writes some really good stuff for ESPN. I recognize that it wasn't this simple, but missing out on the playoffs because your linebacker got ejected for shoving an athletic trainer the same week that an athletic trainer saved a player's life is probably one of the stupidest ways to miss the playoffs I can think of. And Green Bay were right in it. They did blow it at the end. So, yeah. Yep, it's terrible. Well, I mean, what sort of number would you put on that? Like, how many games should a player like that miss for doing something that stupid? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. I'd have to look at precedent in that, but... I think you could, given the DeMar Hamlin situation, I think you could definitely justify at least one game. Yeah, one to two. I mean, it doesn't have to be earth-shattering. Like, it doesn't have to be a 10, 15-game suspension, but you've just got to understand that athletic trainers are like the umpires. You just you don't need to touch them. Well, they're there for a reason. They're there to do a job, and they're there to look after you when the shit hits the fan if you get injured too. So, yeah, poor. Yeah. Speaking of poor knife... The Houston Texans, what the fuck? Oh, mate, they are so good at being bad, even when... <laughs> oh, Now, I, look, part of me wonders if this was a Lovey Smith thing. So Coach Lovey Smith, and look, he's had a pretty good career. He took the Bears to a Super Bowl appearance when they lost to my Colts. He's, he's had a pretty decent career. He's a good coach. But basically, he went for two, and it kind of guaranteed that they won the game which meant that they missed out on the top pick because there's no lottery system in the NFL. So it all goes based on reverse record. And so they were in that position for the number one pick, but because they won the game, they're now the number two pick. So that's a little yeah. party now, what, gift. What's the happening? Game. <laughs> I was about to say, what's happening with him as a coach? <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's gone now. It's going to be interesting to see where he's, where he's uh, next. But uh, yeah, it won't be at the Texans and they won't have the number one pick. 
that that's basically the equivalent of getting fired and going into your boss's office and leaving his shit on their desk. <laughs> well, they did go for two, Stewie. They, <laughs> they went for two and they get the number two pick as well. So there's a lot of twos in there. Oh, man. Yeah, no, I do feel for Texans fans. I do. Oh, it's rough. It really is rough. Well, though, Nath, week one of the playoffs, as I said, wild card week is in the books. Very, very cool week. Some very close finishes along the way. I guess we'll go through them in chronological order. Probably makes the most sense. San Francisco 49ers 41 defeat the Seattle Seahawks 23. Absolute second half blowout by the 49ers. Brock Purdy throws for three TDs, runs for one himself. Uh, well, not not so much run for, but he was pushed over the goal line for it anyway. Is he the best story in the NFL right now? Oh, it's hard to think of a better one, isn't it? It really is. It's it's quite remarkable. So how's this? So Jimmy Garoppolo during his playoff career, six games, 160 yards passing, four touchdowns, six interceptions, 74 passer rating. Brock Purdy in his first career playoff start, 332 yards, four touchdowns, zero interceptions, 131 passer rating. Uh, they, they traded for Trey Lance to be their quarterback of the future. They might not need him. Brock Purdy has been magnificent. And obviously, I've been talking about how good their offense is, but their defense is bloody good too. They're a very well-balanced side, very hard to defend, have so many weapons. They're going to be scary. Now, I'll be honest, this is the game I saw the least of. I didn't see any game in full. I saw a lot of other games, uh, the second halves of a lot of games. I didn't see a lot of this one because I did expect San Francisco to win it comfortably, and that's exactly what happened. But as you say, I think Seattle were up at halftime. So it was a magnificent second half by the 49ers, and boy, they will be dangerous. And it's interesting you mentioned the defense. The 49ers statistically are probably the best defense in the league. They're certainly one of the top two or three. But in in terms of the numbers, you would argue they're the best defense in the league right now. So they are, yeah, spectacularly good on that side of the ball. Now, really, really interesting game in this one. The Jacksonville Jaguars 31 defeat the San Diego Chargers 30. Yeah, this is nuts. So I switched this one on when it was 27 to 7. And it would have been tempting to turn it off. But I am so glad that I didn't because it was, well, the Jags came from behind. I've got to send you this picture, Stewie. So remember when last year they had Urban Meyer and there was that scandal with that chick grinding on him at the at the bar? How could I forget? Someone's posted a picture. The Jags came from behind with that girl grinding up <laughs> on him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is great. And, and that the, is great. The, other, the other picture I loved was the win probability. Literally, the win probability diagram, and I posted this in our Throwback Hoops chat as well. I don't know if you remember seeing it, but it basically mirrored the Chargers logo. <laughs> Ah, I didn't see that. I did yeah, not see oh, that. There's a lot that goes on in that chat. Yeah. A lot goes on in that chat for people that are listening. There are a lot of comments going back and forward. I did want to just quickly, I guess, I guess, sort of run through what happened in this one. So as you mentioned, you turned on at 27 to 7. It was actually worse than that. So Trevor Lawrence threw four picks in the first half with a minute left going into halftime. It's 27 nothing. Oh, I've just had the win probability thing. That is awesome. Yeah, good that, eh? yeah I've just sent that through to you. <laughs> but no, you're that right. Great. He's, I love it. he's the first quarterback to throw four interceptions in a single half of a postseason game and end up winning. His poise in that second half was magnificent. And would you believe he is 34-0 and 0 on Saturdays in college and professional. So he wants to play on Saturdays. Wow. Yeah. 
Do you, do you know what I will say, though? I think the guy, in terms of the turnaround, wasn't so much Lawrence. Like I think it was Evan Engram. So he made that really, really key touchdown reception late in the second, picked up some big yardage in the third quarter with some tough receptions. And I think it allowed Lawrence to kind of get that good feeling going again of, okay, I'm starting to see some, you know, some balls make it to their targets rather than being picked off. And all of a sudden, you can start seeing that Lawrence gets that swagger back. And and before you know it, yeah, the, the game is on. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's just, it's crazy to think that they managed that comeback. So, Nathan, I've got two questions for you. One of them's a bit silly. Is anyone happier watching this game than Matt Ryan? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. No, he will be happy because it was the third biggest playoff comeback of all time, actually. So, and it just takes everyone's mind off him as well. Yeah, so Colts 28 against the Chiefs in 2013 and the Bills 32 against the Oilers in 1992. But yeah, 27-point comeback, just incredible. And the poise of Lawrence is what's really impressive. There's only been one bloke that's done worse as far as interceptions in the playoffs. George Blander had five once against San Diego and had a win. But just, I, Ingram's right. You're right. That's a very good point. And his receivers were playing well for him. But also the other thing, so there was a really key penalty. So I was surprised when they got the touchdown to make it 26, I just assumed they were going to just kick and, and get themselves to 27-30. But they made the really key decision to go for two. And it proved to be a really important one because ultimately it meant that they only needed to get a field goal in the end to get the win. But part of that was because of a unsportsmanlike penalty. So... Joey Bosa actually got really pissed off, slammed his helmet down, and it meant that they did get a little bit closer to the goal line. Now, look, I suspect they probably would have made that two-point conversion anyway, but it's really interesting to see a quote from him. So he said, if I say something to them, I get a $40,000 fine, but if they blow a call that ruins an entire team's season, they probably go back to the locker room after the game like, ha ha, what an asshole. Oh yeah, got him, 15 yards, what a loser. So, look, I don't think they were necessarily out to get him. And I think the penalty was there, but it was a big penalty and it did help them get that two-point conversion, which, as I said, ultimately meant that they didn't need to go for a game-winning touchdown. They only needed to get in field goal range. So, yeah, great work by the Jags. And it's got to be said, a real choke by the Chargers. It does indeed. And I'll tell you what, that was my second question, funnily enough, was what were your thoughts on going for a two-point conversion when the point after, I mean, you're certainly right, obviously with that penalty and basically allowing Lawrence to just quarterback sneak effectively and sort of throw the arm out to get over the plane. It's a it's a big call, you know, because you mess that up and all of a sudden that field goal is not enough. So, yeah, it, it's a big call. Some people were wondering if the Jags made halftime adjustments. It was really funny hearing Peyton on, on Manning cast when they did this game. I don't know if I ever made a halftime adjustment in my entire 18-year career. I think that's the biggest myth in football, the halftime adjustments. You go in, you use the restroom, you eat a couple of oranges, and then the head coach says, all right, let's go. <laughs> that's good. I like that. So it's just as simple as a change of momentum, according to Peyton. No, no, fair, definitely fair. Now, moving on, the Buffalo Bills 34 defeat the Miami Dolphins 31. How lucky were the Bills in this one, do you reckon? Oh, they're shaky. They're shaky. I'd be a bit worried if I were the Bills and I were a Bills fan. Von Miller's out as well, so their defense isn't looking as good. They were playing against a second stringer with no tour playing. Look, survive in advance, but poor. Yeah, they, they escaped. But this is the thing, like three-point game with loads of time. The Dolphins still had two shots at it. 
So that's one of those ones where you look at it and you go, oh, God, as a Bills fan, yeah, you you would expect to win that. I mean, they were by far the superior team in terms of record. So you would expect to go in there and win that game fairly comfortably. And it looked it looked like in the first half it was going to be that way. But the Dolphins, yeah, they just came out and counted. It was, it was a good game to watch. Now, another really fun game, the New York Giants 31 defeated the Minnesota Vikings 24 in Minnesota. First obvious question, how fucking good is Saquon Barkley? Oh, he's amazing. And him back to full health, it's a big deal. He's one of the best running backs in the league. He's in really good form at the moment. They're going to ride that form. They're going to be sneaky next week too. I think it's really interesting. So all season long, no one believed in Minnesota. They just kept winning these close games, six or seven, like one-score games, I think it was. And then, of course, they lose the first one-score game they play in the playoffs. That It just apparently everyone's thoughts were, were right. They just weren't the team that that – perhaps their record suggested they were. Now, one other thing, I guess, with the Giants, it seemed to me like Daniel Jones had a lot of time to make the plays he did. Obviously, really good blocking by his team, but do you see him getting that sort of room against the Eagles? Now, they, the Eagles lead the league in sacks and fewest passing yards allowed. I don't know. Will he get that sort of room and that sort of time? I'll definitely be picking the Eagles, but the Giants are a sneaky chance. Obviously, they're in the same division. They play each other quite regularly. So three teams from the same division have all made it to the divisional round. Now, obviously, the playoff field has expanded, so that's partly why. But very impressive that all uh, New York, Philly and Dallas are in. I, I would give them a shot, but yes, yeah, certainly it's, it's going to be much tougher against that Philly team who some people would say have the best roster in the entire league. So it is going to be a real challenge. But I think it could be a close one. I think the Eagles might eke out a close one there. Now, moving on, the Cincinnati Bengals 24 defeating the Baltimore Ravens 17. Nathan, did you have Sam Hubbard 98-yard fumble recovery as the game winner on your bingo card? (laughs) I certainly did not, but it's these little goal line stands. So we talked about the, the goal line's decision to go for two in the Jacksonville game that basically got them the win. Yeah, Tyler Huntley, if he just managed to reach out just a tiny bit further, it's a touchdown and Baltimore up 24-17. But no, fumbled it at the goal line and yeah, they took it to the house. It was a great play. In fact, I think it's a record. It's got to be a record. 98-yard fumble return in the playoffs. Great work by the Bengals. He's he's now known as Tyler Fumbly, so it's not great. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Uh, if I was a Bengals fan, I'd be a little bit worried about their offensive line. They've Unfortunately, after a season in which they had a lot of good stability and, and managed to avoid injuries throughout nearly all of the regular season, it's kind of turned to shit for them a little bit at the end. So, so yeah, I would be a little bit worried about those Bengals. Obviously, made the Super Bowl last year and they're a very good team, but uh, you need a good offensive line to win in the NFL. You do. And the game that I alluded to at the start that we're all very, very happy about, the Dallas Cowboys 31 defeat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 14. (sighs) Is this the end of Tom Brady? Uh, Well, it's an interesting question because it depends how you define the end. Will he play on? That's what I mean. I think he will play on. Uh, But I do think it's probably the end too. I don't think, I think he'll play on and I don't think he'll necessarily be that great because he'll be 46. But I, I think he kind of has to play on because he basically ruined his marriage to come back. You can't just come back for one season, have a really shitty one. By the way, they were below 500. And we've talked about before how we think it's shit that the team with the lower record can host uh, host the match. And indeed, Jacksonville hosted and they had an inferior record to the Chargers and they ended up winning. So don't love that. But yeah, I, I, 
I think he'll probably end up at Miami next year, which is where he tried to get in the offseason before Belichick kind of ruined that for him. But I don't think he'll necessarily be all that good. Be an interesting situation, though. They could let Tua have a, a year off with the concussion stuff, learn some stuff behind Brady. That's kind of, if I was a betting man, I'd be putting money on Brady going to Miami at this point. Interesting, interesting indeed. I had seen Miami for the record, but yeah, it's it's oh, it's so interesting with Tua being such a quality player. But yeah, the concussions, they're just they're, they're a killer, aren't they? They really are. Well, in now, that sense, it I, could work out really well for them. It means that they could bring him back slowly, and and hopefully his career's not over. So yeah, it'd be interesting. Very, very good point. Now, the the thing I guess that was doing a lot of the rounds on Twitter was the story of Brett Mayhar missing his first four point after kicks, which was absolutely insane. It was actually one more than he missed all season long and gave him a streak of five consecutive misses. Three was the most ever missed in an NFL playoff game. A verified Jerry Jones Twitter account tweeted, if you can kick and are currently in the stadium right now, come on down to the field. We've got a jersey for you. Now, firstly, currently in the stadium right now, that's you can't be in the stadium not currently. Like It's, it's just grammatically stupid. Anyway, if that's the rule, Jerry Jones... Like, what a horrible move. Brett Mayhar's already feeling like shit. You could see his head drop further every time he missed one. But to basically say that you're going to replace him with anyone off the street, like, that's, oh, it's rough. Oh, Stewie, we got to, let's use the Aussie pronunciation. Brett Ma. Let's call him Brett Ma. That's what he is. He's Brett Ma. Yeah, all right. Which is fair enough, fair enough. But yeah, because yeah, Brett Ma was an amazing, he was an amazing shooter as yeah, well. Like, yeah. he didn't miss. Look, people have a bad day, you know? You can have a bad day at work. You can have a bad day on the golf course. You can have a bad day. You, you, so, I don't know. It's a bit rough. But it's funny, on the Manning cast, Peyton basically said, has ever, has anyone ever been cut at halftime before? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, I'd man. stick with him. I think he just had a bad game. It's pretty inexcusable to miss those little chip shot point afters, but they're not as chippy as they used to be. They have moved them back a little bit. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I put it down to a bad day, and, and hopefully he'll come good. And Dallas Dallas are a really interesting one. I wouldn't be surprised if they lose next week, but I also wouldn't be surprised if they made the Super Bowl. They're the real wild card team left, I think. Could go. Anything could happen. Well, that's interesting, because I was going to ask you, are there any shot of beating the 49ers? And I guess the answer is yes. I, I do think they are, but the big deal is the rest. So 49ers have two days extra rest. So I do fully expect San Francisco to win, but... Anything can happen. Dallas do have a good team. They've got a good defense. So, yeah, you never know. And it's a great rivalry that goes back, obviously, decades and decades. So my fingers are very firmly crossed. That'll be a great game. Amen. Now, you mentioned Brady, Stewie. I just wanted to talk about the next generation. So these are the ages of the last eight remaining quarterbacks in the playoffs now. Lawrence, 23. Purdy, 23. Jalen Hurts, 24. Daniel Jones, 25. Burrow, 26, Allen, 26, Mahomes, 27, and Dak Prescott is the elder statesman at 29. So well and truly, we're getting some regeneration in the NFL and hopefully good things to come for all those young players. Oh, it's about bloody time, seriously. I do worry about the quarterback depth a little bit in the NFL. So it's good to see guys like Lawrence and, and that playing well in the playoffs. All right, Stewie always feels weird doing final thoughts when we're about to record another episode straight after, but final thoughts time. It feels even weirder doing it in a different state, man. This is just its so weird. But look, honestly, so much excitement going on in the Australian Open right now. I'm loving it aside from these four o'clock finishes. Obviously, the NBL going into playoffs and, and just a great finish to the regular season. And look, I just got my leave approved for the Super Bowl, so we're all good in the NFL. 
On the next episode, we've got some NBA, we've got some cricket, and a bloody hell too. Lots to talk about. Keep an eye on that one out very soon. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sportblokes. <laughs>